Sandra Lee grew up in a rural section of northeast Tennessee. And her family, like most families in the county where she lived, made their living by growing tobacco. So everyone in Sandra's family smoked. Everyone in her community smoked. Everyone in her church smoked. When smoking bans became popular in many restaurants throughout the country, none of the restaurants in that county banned smoking because everybody smoked. Everybody did it. And no one in that region ever talked about the health risks of smoking or the consequences of smoking because the culture of that community was built around an unquestioned acceptance of smoking. Everybody did it. Well, it's no surprise then that without even thinking about it, Sandra, when she became a teenager, she started smoking. It was a normal, natural part of her life. And then she graduated from high school, she went off to college in another state, and she got the shock of her life because almost nobody at her college smoked. And for the first time in her life, Sandra heard rational reasons why smoking is bad. Those reasons made great sense to her, and yet she was very reluctant to change. And why is that? Because for her, smoking, excuse me, stopping smoking would be far more than just a change in personal habits. For her to stop smoking, she would have to reject the culture of the community in which she grew up. To stop smoking was to turn away from a lifestyle that she had assumed was normal. To stop smoking meant that when she went home to visit, she'd no longer fit in the same way because she would be different. Now eventually, she did stop smoking, but it didn't happen quickly. And her story, her experience, illustrates the powerful influence of culture. Whether it's the food we eat, or the things we drink, or the way we dress, or the politics we adopt, or the career we choose, so often those things are shaped by the culture of our community. And more often than we realize, we do what we do because everyone around us does it. We do what we do because it's normal and expected and natural. And we may not exactly think of it this way, but what goes on in our community is a form of peer pressure. And we can be pressured to conform. And then when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we step into a new group, a new community. It's called the family of God. It's called the body of Christ. It's called the church. And the church is different than every other group because our life together in the church is defined by God through the truth he revealed in the scriptures. And therefore, the values of God should shape our attitudes and actions, not the culture of the community around us. 
And many, many times there's a tension between these two groups of which we are a part. Community, church. Which one will influence us? That's the very real issue at play in the Bible passage we're going to explore today. Because peer pressure is a very real thing. And the peer pressure of the larger community can be incredibly strong. And for for Christians in the ancient city of Pergamum, that peer pressure is intense. Because they live in a community where people don't just engage in ungodly practices. People in that community actually express their worship through harmful and degrading behavior, and everybody does it. How do you hold on to Jesus in an environment like that? Well, it's not easy. And therefore, it's no surprise that our spiritual ancestors are struggling to get it right. And under that pressure, some of them do give in and they do yield to the culture. Yet here's what's so encouraging. Jesus doesn't write them off even though they're struggling and they're sometimes failing because Jesus loves his church. So he dictates a letter recorded by the Apostle John and Jesus explains how these believers in Pergamum can thrive even though they live in an incredibly ungodly city. And as Jesus loves to do, he starts not with critique. He starts with commendation. And so he starts by commending them for one area of life in which they truly are standing strong. Let's take a look at Revelations chapter 2 starting in verse 12. This is Jesus speaking to the Apostle John, who's the divine secretary recording these words. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Isn't that a wonderful way to have your city described? (laughs) Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. That's an awkward formulation. What he's really saying is you didn't deny your faith in me. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Once again, where Satan dwells. Okay, so this letter, like all of the letters that Jesus dictates here in Revelation, begins with a vivid image of Christ, and this, each image is different, and it's particular for the church involved, and this particular image is of Jesus wielding this double-edged sword, and that sword is a metaphor for the Word of God, because Scripture is sharp and piercing. God's truth cuts deeply into our minds and our hearts and our souls in order to expose spiritual darkness and to bring human beings into the light of God. Followers of Jesus need the penetrating truth of God's word. And this particular image of Jesus as the bearer of God's sword of truth, it speaks directly to the culture of Pergamum because it's a city based on spiritual lies. 
At the time Jesus dictates this letter, Pergamum is the world center of idolatry. It's full of temples dedicated to various gods. Two examples. One is a temple dedicated to a god called Asclepius the Savior. Asclepius the Savior. There's a temple where citizens come and worship Caesar as Lord. So just think about that. Asclepius the Savior, Caesar the Lord, that is significant spiritual deceit. Which is why Jesus calls this community the home of Satan. And Asclepius and Caesar are just two of the false gods offered to the citizens of Pergamum. It's a community that is immersed in a culture of idolatry. And it's a culture that the church knows well because virtually all the Christians in that church previously had been idol worshipers because if you lived in Pergamum, that's what you did. But the Christians were rescued from spiritual darkness when God's double-edged sort of truth penetrated their hearts. And they realized that Jesus and only Jesus is Savior and Lord. And these former idol worshipers now have been redeemed and are part of God's church. Yet they continue to live in a city that daily reminds them of their former ungodly lives. And here's what's really powerful. Jesus never says to them, pack your bags and leave. And why not? Because the life of faith is not about escaping from the unbelieving world. The life of faith is about living in our world without letting the culture of this world overwhelm us. The life of faith is about expressing the love of Jesus so that we can radiate his light out into the darkness of our world and help rescue other people as we, by God's grace, have been rescued. Jesus wants his people to be witnesses even in a city that is the throne of Satan. Don't flee, church. Stay. Trust. And be the light of God. It's not easy. And so, because the Pergamum Christians worship Jesus, they're different and they're persecuted at times. And yet, despite persecution, they never turn away from Jesus. They don't deny their faith. And as we read here, even when a Christian named Antipas is martyred and pays the ultimate price, they don't reject Christ. And that's really impressive because martyrdom always is ugly. And for Antipas, it was really ugly. I don't want to gross anybody out, but I think it's important at times to understand what some of our spiritual ancestors endured. Church history tells us that Antipas was roasted alive in a brazen bull. That was a horrific form of execution that enjoyed a flurry of popularity under the Romans. 
And the fact that a form of execution is popular tells us something about the corruption of that culture. A brazen bull was a large hollow statue made of brass and it was shaped like a, like a bull. Victims had their tongues cut out. Then they were sealed inside and then a fire was lit around that bull. And the metal would get hotter and hotter and the person inside would scream in agony and that bull was constructed with vents and pipes and whistles which converted their screams into snorts and growls that sounded like those of a real bull much to the amusement of the spectators it was barbaric it was a horrible horrible way to die And it would be horrifying to watch someone in your church family be brutally killed like that. Imagine how we would feel if someone in this church was arrested and then publicly, brutally executed simply for worshiping Jesus. It would be terrifying. We would very naturally be afraid. And yet the true test of faith in those situations is to refuse to yield to the fear that we feel. Jesus wants us to trust him enough that we will let him carry us through our fear and not yield to our fear. And that's how the believers in Pergamum respond. They refuse to let fear overcome their faith, so they continue to proudly bear the name of Jesus. And by doing so, they can inspire every church in every age. It's no wonder that Jesus commends them for standing strong. And yet, there's more to this story. I I once was talking with a friend about martyrdom, and he made a comment that I've never forgotten. He said, you know, when push comes to shove, I really do think I could die for Jesus because that's like a one and done sort of deal. The bigger challenge for me is this. Am I willing to be inconvenienced for Jesus? Am I willing to be marginalized for my faith? Am I willing to live with some ridicule for being out of step with my culture? I think that's a harder decision, my friend said, because it's one I must make each and every day. Interesting. I was reminded of those words this week precisely because of what Jesus says next to the Christians in Pergamum. Yes, they're standing strong. They're not denying Christ. But some of them are giving in to the culture. Let's continue on. But I have a few things against you, Jesus says. You've some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
So this is fascinating, because on the one hand, they're very, very strong, they're standing firm, they're holding to their identity in Christ, and yet some people in that congregation are um, embracing ungodly aspects of the culture of their community. And that kind of thing tends to undermine a church from within. And Jesus highlights two specific problems. First, there are some Christians that are following the teaching of a false prophet named Balaam, and because of that, they're eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, you compare eating food sacrificed to idols with martyrdom, oh, eating the food's a lot easier. You don't have to die. But what are you doing? You're just going along to get along. I can picture some Christian in Pergamum saying to himself or herself, you know, I I love Jesus and idols don't have any power over me anymore. So when I eat this food, I'm I'm not worshiping like I used to do. I'm just eating some food that's part of the local culture. There's no harm in it. Jesus obviously thinks there is harm in it, which is why he tells them to stop. You see, eating that food, because it's related to their former way of worship is playing with fire because it can tempt them to return to their old life. And furthermore, by participating in the culture of a competing spirituality, the outside community gets a mixed message. Unbelievers might think, oh, you can become a a Christian and not really have to make any changes in your life. You can just keep doing all the stuff you used to do. And that's not the message we need to send to the world because following Jesus is about change. When we say yes to Jesus, we are committed to becoming his disciples and following him. And yes, there are things that he asks us to let go of in order to be faithful followers. And so for these believers, Jesus is saying if you've left idol worship behind, then you need to leave idol worship related practices behind. Even if it seems like it's something as innocuous as eating particular foods. But it goes beyond that because a big part of idol worship involves ungodly sexual activity. Idol worshipers in that day, as an expression of their worship, would go down to the temple and have sex with temple prostitutes. That was worship. As an expression of worship, they would participate in orgies associated with particular spiritual seasons of the year. Trust me, those weren't Christian spiritual seasons. And evidently, some believers in the church are still doing that because they've embraced the teachings of the Nicolaitans who espouse those kinds of things. And they did it because the Nicolaitans believed that Christianity was only concerned with spiritual stuff and that spiritual stuff had nothing to do with the human body. The body was corrupt, so God didn't care about it. Well, if the body is corrupt and it plays no part in your spirituality, then just indulge it. So be a glutton for food. Be a glutton for sex. Just do whatever feels good. It's all okay with Jesus. But it's not okay with Jesus. because God wants to purify our whole being, soul, spirit, and body. He's concerned about all of us, and so those false teachings are damaging 
to a disciple of Jesus. And yet, if we think about it, I believe we can understand why believers in Pergamum might do this because that kind of behavior is normalized in their community. Everybody does it. Yet because everybody does it, obviously doesn't make it right. And what I think we really need to see is this. It's so easy for us as human beings to rationalize certain behavior. And we can engage in things that are inappropriate. And we can say, I'm, I'm not afraid to be identified as a Christian. I'm just fitting in with the culture. But we can't compromise God's truth to fit in with the culture. And we need to discern how and where to draw appropriate boundaries. And in this case, the believers have gone too far. And instead of shining the light of Jesus out into their culture, they're bringing the darkness of the culture into the church. And all of this highlights the tension that we face as followers of Jesus. How do we live by faith in the midst of an ungodly culture that pressures us to conform? Well, some believers adopt a fortress mentality and they just barricade themselves against the culture. They don't hang out with unbelievers and I know Christians that seem to sort of live in a parallel universe so that their lives never brush up against anyone who's not a Christian. Well, that certainly protects them, but it deprives the community of a living witness to Jesus. And then there's other believers like these ones in Pergamum who hang on to their Christian identity, but they just keep yielding to the culture more and more and more because it's so much more comfortable. Neither response is right. God wants us to stay engaged with our community in order to influence it and help lead people to Jesus to do so without letting the culture corrupt us. And finding that right balance is never easy. It takes a lot of prayer, it takes a lot of faith, it takes Holy Spirit discernment, and it takes the wisdom and support of this community that God has given us the privilege of being a part of, this community called the church. And we can help each other navigate this together. Now, we obviously live in a culture very different from that of ancient Pergamum, but we're not immune from the challenge of idol worship. And because we're modern people, we don't think of ourselves as idol worshipers, but the fact is today people easily can be idol worshipers. And to defend ourselves, we need to recognize that we are surrounded by powerful cultural idols that can have tremendous pull on us and can potentially hinder our ability to be faithful disciples of Jesus. So what are the idols of American culture? Most social commentators have settled on three. Money, power, and sex. They believe those are the cultural idols of modern day America. And I think they're right, because money Materialism drives our culture. 
And money's not inherently evil. A lot of people misquote the Bible and say, oh, money's the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money becomes an idol when we pursue it as a goal rather than use it as a tool. And you don't have to look very far in our culture to see people for whom money is an idol. Have you ever ever watched a a news clip of what goes on on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange? (laughs) Some of those people are just earning a living, but if you watch the behavior, my goodness, some of those people are expressing idolatry in their worship of money. And we need to be humble enough to submit our monetary decisions to God so that we trust Him more than we trust our assets. And as long as we're trusting him first, money won't be an idol for us. And power becomes an idol when we pursue it for our own purposes rather than exercising it as a sacred trust. If we have an influential role in the church or in a company or in a community, that power we have is a trust. It's not there to build ourselves up and make ourselves look good. And we can idolize power in others if we place our trust in other people more than we do in God. Watch the behavior that takes place at a typical political rally. Some of those politicians and some of their followers are worshiping power. They're enthralled to an idol. And then there's sex, which is a huge idol in our culture, and it fills our TV shows and our movies and our music and our humor. And sex dominates the thinking of too many people, and they find find themselves relentlessly pursuing sexual pleasure as if that is the most important thing in life, as if somehow sex is what leads to human fulfillment. And as followers of Jesus, you and I, cannot blindly surrender to those cultural idols. And yet because they're all around us and because they're embedded in our culture, it's easy to worship them without thinking. It's like the story I told you about Sandra who automatically started smoking because everybody she knew was a smoker. She didn't think about it, she just did it. And we can fall into those same patterns with the embedded idols in our culture. Because if everybody does it, if it's normal and natural, we can just get kind of swept along in it and engage in it without even thinking about it. And so to protect ourselves, to make sure that we follow Jesus faithfully, we have to be observant and discerning. And we need to spend time in the Word of God and let God's two-edged sword guide our thinking and help us cut through the difference between truth and lies. Otherwise, like the Pergamum Christians, we can keep holding on to the name of Jesus, but slowly and steadily yield to the culture. And if we have a lifestyle that looks like everybody else, then what do we really have to offer the world? Christians look like everybody else and behave like everybody else. What is there? But when we stay faithful to Jesus and we have an incredible message of hope to offer to our very broken and very confused culture because Jesus sets you and me free from the need for idols of any type.
when we trust him alone and worship him alone, we are free. And we can live each day with hope in God for today, tomorrow, and eternity. And oh, is that a message our world needs to hear. Now, in addition to these three big cultural idols of money, sex, and power, I would add a fourth one, and it's one that I think we don't think about much because it's so normal and natural for us to think about it as Americans that we're oblivious to it. Here's what I think is a huge cultural idol, personal independence. We live in a culture that makes an idol out of individualism. And yet right here in this passage, we can see that that thinking is not entirely biblical. Jesus makes that very clear. If you noticed as I was working through this passage, the entire church at Pergamum is not in error. Only some of the people are getting it wrong, and yet Jesus takes the entire church to task. And why is that? It's because in Christianity, the individual and the community are inseparable. We are accountable to each other. We are responsible for each other. And so this love letter from Jesus offers a message of group correction for the behavior of some individuals. And I think this is one of the toughest things for us to get our heads around as American Christians because our culture so prizes individualism. We've been conditioned to act based on our personal priorities and the the idea of being accountable to others is something that many of us strongly resist. And yet we need to let God change that way of thinking so that we can be the church he wants us to be. And we need to practice some humility so that we can submit to one another as the Apostle Paul urges us to do in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. We spent some time on that verse a short while back as we were working our way through the, the book of Ephesians. The core relationship between followers of Jesus is one of mutual submission, mutual yielding, mutual deference. And so we need to be trusting of each other, involved with each other, not always strive to get our own way. And that's why we don't just go to church. Jesus wants us to be the church, to be a family, to be a community, to actually know each other better and growing, growing, growing so that we are continually doing more and more of life together and finding strength and encouragement in our life together. Because that is a value of what it means to be the church, That's one of the reasons why midweek growth groups are so important. That's a chance to connect outside of worship and get to know people and invest in each other and build deeper relationships. That's one of the reasons we have church lunches several times a year, like the one we're gonna have next Sunday after the service. It's an opportunity to maintain friendships, to build new friendships, to deepen friendships. And out of those relationships, we then encourage each other. We learn how to care for each other. We build enough trust with each other that even when necessary, we can critique and correct each other as Jesus does in this love letter. 
Because when you love somebody, sometimes you have to say some things that are hard to hear. Sometimes there has to be some tough love for the well-being of that person who is part of the church. And here's what I found when churches understand this and as they grow into this, over time, trust grows. Criticism decreases. Gossip decreases. When relationships are broken, people pursue reconciliation more aggressively because they don't want to be at odds with a brother or sister in Christ. When someone's struggling, it's much more natural to look out for each other. And if some well-meaning but misguided person starts bringing false teaching into the church, oh, it will be lovingly addressed because as followers of Jesus, we want to, we want to keep each other from being led astray. We'll care enough to confront. We'll love enough to critique and correct. And sadly, Christians in Pergamum evidently didn't care enough to do that. They didn't love enough to do that. And so this problem of false teaching leading to ungodly lifestyles associated with the church, it's all been creeping in, it's taken root, it's undermining the church. And since no one in the church addresses it, Jesus does. And so he has critiqued them where they've been giving in and now he's going to tell them how to correct the problem. And so they need to listen. They need to listen to the wisdom revealed by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the last couple of verses. Therefore, repent. That probably should have an exclamation point on it. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to this next part. To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. That's where Jesus always wants his people to go. To the point of conquering, to being victorious. To the one who conquers, I will give him, give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus calls the entire church to repent. So that section of the church where people have yielded to the culture and are doing ungodly things, they need to repent. Those that chose to ignore the problem, who stood idly by and let it happen, who didn't love enough to confront it and bring about a word of correction, they also need to repent because the whole church is affected and the whole church is in it together. And Jesus says if they don't repent, he'll wield his sword of truth, which means he's gonna deal with the lies that some believers have embraced. And I confess, I don't know exactly what that looks like for Jesus to show up wielding his sword of truth, but I know that it will be cleansing and it will be restorative because that's what his truth always brings into a community. And because that's what Jesus always wants for his people restoration, redemption, renewal. And if they will listen to the Holy Spirit, if they will repent and recommit themselves to following Jesus, then they will move from failure to victory. 
Jesus wants them to conquer. That's always his goal. And that's how he wraps up this love letter to this church. Something we, we need to understand is that whenever Jesus shows us some area of life that we need to fix, he might speak to it very directly, he might even speak to it sternly, but he's always gonna offer us hope. And if we repent, then there's blessings in store for us in this life and the next, and that's what he reminds these believers about. And he offers two specific blessings to the Pergamum Christians. Hidden manna and a white stone. And what are those two things? We really don't know. <laughs> the meaning of those two blessings probably was very clear to our spiritual ancestors, but over time, the meanings become a bit murky for us. Bible scholars have offered a number of explanations, but here's what I think are the most simple ones that make the most sense to me. So here's what I think the hidden manna is referring to. During the years the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, God miraculously provided manna every day as a basic source of food. And in a similar way, the Pergamum believers live in a spiritual wilderness because they live in a city that's the throne of Satan. They're surrounded by idolatry, but that culture won't, won't feed them any more than the wilderness would have fed the ancient Israelites when they were wandering. Worshiping idols won't feed the souls of the Christians. Instead, what they need to do is eat and drink from the word of God. God's truth is what will nourish them and sustain them. And as they do that individually and as a church, they will be refreshed and sustained. God's hidden manna is his truth that every believer in Christ has access to. Then what about this white stone? Well, again, here's what I think makes the most sense. Many idol worshipers in that day carried a lucky charm, and that lucky charm usually was a stone inscribed with the name of their favorite God, and they would keep that name secret, believing it gave them special power. So Jesus might be saying to these former idol worshipers, you know, when you were an idol worshiper, you carried around a charm with a special name on it, but you don't need that anymore. There's no power in it. I know your name. I know who you are. I know what you need. And I've got a better stone waiting for you. Because Jesus is the rock of our salvation. And our life in him is built on the rock of his church. That is our sure and certain foundation for life and for faith and for hope. So those are my opinions on the meanings. But whatever the manna and the stone mean, one thing is very clear. These are special best blessings that Jesus will give to those in this church who listen to the Spirit and follow him. And here's the takeaway. Spiritual victory overcoming, conquering, that always belongs to those whose hearts and minds belong to Jesus. Spiritual victory belongs to those who do not isolate themselves and try to go it alone, but who willingly and joyfully live in the mutually submissive relationships of the church. Spiritual victory belongs to those who willingly, lovingly, humbly yield to Jesus our Lord and Savior, and don't yield to the culture. 
So what became of Pergamum? Well, here's a perspective from Dr. Ed Stetzer, who is a pastor, a church planter, and a theologian. A few years ago, he visited Pergamum. It's now known as Bergama, and it's in the nation of Turkey. And here's what Dr. Stetzer wrote about that visit. This is a quote. I preached about Pergamum as I stood among its ruins on the hilltop. We could hear the Islamic call to prayer ringing out from mosques in the town below. It was a startling irony preaching the gospel in a place that once had many Christians, but now is 99% Muslim. And what was I preaching about? Jesus' warning to that church about the dangers of compromise with competing spiritualities. As we explored the ruins of ancient Pergamum, it occurred to us that we were viewing one possible future for the American church. Ruin. So here's the lesson from Pergamum. It isn't enough to simply not deny Christ in the face of opposition. We also must stand against the subtle influences of the culture around us. We cannot let worldly and satanic philosophies creep into our lives and into our churches. We must continually, continually, continually repent from those things and turn toward Jesus. My response to those words, and I hope yours as well, is a hearty amen. I see Jesus' love letter to the church in Pergamum as a wake-up call to the church in every age. And so I believe in response, we need to take time to reflect and pray. How is the culture of our larger community influencing you? How is it influencing me? How is it influencing us? Where are we tempted due to the peer pressure of our community to go along to get along? What must we do as the church so that together we can hold firmly onto Jesus and influence our culture toward Christ? Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? Are we listening? Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope so. Because if we listen and if we respond, oh, then we will be victorious. We will conquer. And we will be the believers and the church and the influence in our community that Jesus wants us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words from Jesus are so very, very challenging, and yet he offers them because of his love for us, his church. So please help us listen to the Spirit and hear what Jesus is saying to us today in our church, in our community, in our time. 
And please give us the discernment we need to be shaped by the culture of your community, Father, the church, and not the culture around us. At the same time, please help us not to fear our world, to fear our community, to fear the culture outside the church, but to trust you and to believe that you can empower us to be people of influence in our culture. And toward that end, help us to hold tightly onto Jesus and help us to hold tightly onto each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.